Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 501 with my guest, Dr. Menage Bedurian. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the bullshit, all the crazy, all the cuckoo. I'm not a therapist. Uh, so if you're, if you're looking for all the answers to what you're struggling with, holy shit, did you come to the wrong place? But, you might not feel as alone by the end of this. Uh, the website for this show is uh, mentalpod.com. Mentalpod, also the social media handles you can follow it at. And I haven't mentioned this in a while, but we could definitely use some financial assistance. Uh, you can do one-time donations through PayPal, or you can become a monthly donor through Patreon. And that helps a lot. Having monthly donors really keeps the show afloat. And uh, you can qualify for little uh, little freebies on on Patreon, but more than anything, it really really helps the show. And I'll put links to uh, all this stuff. Um, I think under the show notes, but it's also on the website. If you just go to the website, you can figure this bullshit out. You don't need me to toilet train you through how to support a podcast. Oh my God, Paul, speed it up! Come on. I want to kick things off with a awfulsome moment filled out by a non-binary person who refers to themselves as the crushed crusher, and they're uh, 18, and they write, I came out to my dad last night about being non-binary, and it didn't go well. He said that I was messed up and confused because of therapy, all of the podcasts I listen to, the TV shows I watch and the antidepressants that I take. He sounds like a terrific guy. Basically, he thinks that anything I do that he doesn't understand fucked me up. Yeah, that does that does sound like... Uh, yeah, it was hard to hear, and when I 
had finally had enough of his verbal abuse, I said, Dad, I need to finish this conversation later. As awful as that was, I realized on my way home that I was able to tolerate that and respond appropriately because of all the things he doesn't understand. Going to therapy, taking antidepressants, and listening to other people's stories all helped me to be a more calm, understanding, and empathetic person. Wow. That is the definition of awfulsome. Um, Only 18 years old, and you've already got that squared away in in your head, and you're already finding empathy for sick people sick people around you who are pushing your buttons you 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 have got a big soul my friend sending you a big hug this i love these surveys the uh memorable vacation arguments uh i don't know what made me create this survey uh i suppose because in my past uh I noticed that a lot of times being on vacation and having to compromise on so many things, a lot of times arguments would uh, would erupt. Not so much uh, in the last couple of years, but previous to that. Shut up, Paul. Move on. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Just Someone. And she writes... Oh God, vacations with my family are always a disaster. My mom has been on multiple trips with one of her longtime friends, a woman who has struggled with mental illness and substance abuse disorders of all kinds. My mom would always return from these trips swearing that was the last time they would travel together because the friend, we'll call her Betty, would always do something outrageous, disappear for a night, bring a pirate back to their hotel room, get fall down drunk and fight with other guests, etc. Of course, it was never really the last time. When my sister was in high school, she had huge emotional struggles and my parents were really worried her life was in, in danger. Her boyfriend at the time was a crack dealer, so you get the point. Mom decided a vacation to Florida might just be what my sister needed, and why not invite Betty? I was in college and felt like my self-destructive little sister didn't deserve a vacation for bad behavior unless I was also invited. So off the four of us, uh, so off the four of us went to share a hotel room. It was an emotional shitstorm from the first night. Actually, probably once we got to the airport, my mom convinced Betty to give me some of her benzos to calm me on the plane. I don't know if you've ever had a benzo, Ativan in particular, but when it wears off, I sometimes cry like a baby. We land at the airport, rent a car, and make our first stop at the liquor store. Betty buys a bottle of something, I can't remember what, starts drinking it in the car, and lights a joint on the road. I decline all of the above and feel so uncool, but also justified. Shortly after we get to the hotel, my mom has convinced me I need to take Betty to the store because I'm the only sober one and she needs cigarettes. The Ativan is worn off, but I'm so emotional now and Betty is on a tirade because my mom and I stepped into the hotel room before her and she, quote, had wanted to see the room first. She needs cigarettes to calm her down after this huge betrayal. How dare we look at the room before her? (laughs) My mom really wants me to take her, probably for a moment of peace. So I get in the car, Betty gets in next to me and starts being awful to me. And before I can exit the parking lot, 
I put the rental car in park and leave the car sobbing, again, out of Van Tears. Betty follows me back to the room, yelling at my mom and telling her she's no fun when I'm around. (laughs) And this is how the next seven days go. On another bad night, Betty came back to the room after I was asleep and wanted to keep partying. She dislikes me openly, despite being my mother's friend, so she felt totally comfortable turning on all the lights, blasting the radio, and offering my 15-year-old sister a swig off a bottle of vodka while I tried to sleep in the bed next to them. Did my mom tell them to be quiet? I can't remember. I finally threw off the covers and screamed, Betty, will you shut the fuck up? If I remember right, that actually worked, and I got some sleep. Safe to say... It was not the healing vacation we needed, but my sister and I did escape for a bike ride one day, and it's one of the few peaceful moments we've had together since we were kids. Oh my God. It is so easy to picture Betty. I think we all have a Betty, a Betty in our life, a female or a male Betty. Oh my God. Oh my God. Thank you for that. Uh, As many of you regular listeners know, when I just kind of randomly select surveys to read on the podcast, uh, little, little themes appear, and the theme for this episode are psych ward experiences, uh, particularly women in their, in their twenties. And this, this one is filled out by Casey F. Why were you hospitalized? Two weeks ago, I tried to commit suicide two times. I was in ICU for three days with stitches in my wrists and having my liver detoxified. I then voluntarily committed myself to their psych unit. Describe your experience. I was talked to like I was incorrigibly hopeless and stupid, like a child. No doctors or nurses listened to my concerns. Instead, I was doped up to the point that I had to refuse some of my medication. I told them, listen, there's some bad cases of mental health in here, me being one of them, but I came here because I thought you would all know better than I do. I work, I drive, I live alone. Whatever you are giving me, I can barely see straight, much less walk. I don't see aliens or take trips outside of the Milky Way like that guy over there that keeps trying to touch my feet. I need different kind of help. My pleas trickled away. I was everything but scoffed at. There was an 18-year-old boy there as well. He was quiet and very, very gentle in movement and speech. He sat beside me at lunch and asked why I was admitted. I told him a little bit of what I had done. What about you? I queried. I hear voices. They've been telling me to kill myself. They are talking to me now. I told him that I understood how scary that must be, and that I hoped the voices would be nicer to him. Then, while getting up, he said, You're nice. I told that man if he tries to touch your feet ever again, I'll kill him. And he walked away. There was an 18-year-old woman. She looked like a child to me. She kept politely coming up to me and whispering, I had a miscarriage. You're so pretty. Are you my cousin? The nurses were not qualified or equipped emotionally or empathetically. They yelled at these poor people, these sick people. I was having a hard enough time getting help, and I had a voice for myself. I took care of myself. What will happen to them? Thank you for that, Casey. That should be framed 
and delivered to Congress. This is from the Love Survey. Yeah, let's lighten it up. Holy fuck. This is filled out by uh, somebody who refers to themselves as Germ X-Men. And they write, I love when I see a dog with their head stuck out a car window, sniffing air like it's that pile of coke in the movie Scarface. (laughs) Oh, do I love that. Oh, do I love that. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. One of our sponsors for today is BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, I talk about it every week. Uh, It's just, it has been such a a blessing in my life, especially during the pandemic. Um, it's, It's so convenient doing it from your home. I love my therapist. And it's just... um. I like it. <laughs> I like it. Kind of at a loss for words. If you want to try uh, online therapy, go to betterhelp.com mental. Fill out a questionnaire, and then they'll match you up with a betterhelp.com counselor and if they have one that they feel is a good match for you. And then you can experience a free week of counseling to see if uh, online counseling is a good fit for you. And if you're not over 18, if you're between 13 and 17, they'll direct you to teencounseling.com, and they'll get parental consent and uh, the some of the legal paperwork they need uh, to to do to move forward so that then you can have a confidential uh, relationship with the with the therapist the the child can and it satisfies all legal requirements in all 50 states uh, and then finally this is from the love survey this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Tom Bombadil and he writes I love playing drums so freaking much Drumming helps me express my emotions. I often contemplate suicide, but if I did that, I wouldn't be able to play drums anymore. Every little thing feels like the end of the world. 
The darkness came so quickly. I was so fucking angry. Make me as close to dead as possible. And I felt so powerless. Without the commitment. If there's a word for it. Unbearable. It means somebody else felt this way. The feeling is so intense. It is a lot more work. I was frightened all the time. To feed a child's emotional world. Everyone feels pain. Than it is their superficial world. Everyone suffers. My sexual addiction was the shame. My mom ended up killing that woman in front of me and my brothers. I had to feel that shame in order to feel the pleasure. And I was being a dick to everybody. We are social beings. And the only way you're going to get it out is to cry. We need to be with people. I grabbed them by their throats and led them down to the floor and watched the breath leave their bodies. Maybe well, listen, thanks for coming in. <laughs> I'm here with Dr. Menage Badurian and... Uh, you're a clinical psychologist, licensed clinical psychologist, and one of the things we're going to talk about today, I'm super excited, is imposter syndrome and perfectionism. Uh, thank you for, for being here, making the trek from, from Woodland Hills. Uh, give us a, just a little bit of background, uh, maybe uh, what led you to get interested in clinical psychology, i.e. how fucked up was your childhood? Uh, <laughs> no, you don't have to get too personal if you're not comfortable. I know uh, uh, clinicians uh, have varying degrees of comfort uh, in terms of uh, personal uh, disclosure. So anything that you're comfortable sharing, I just I, I, I like to, if possible, kind of humanize when I have a therapist or a, a psychiatrist on, kind of humanize them because I think a lot of people see them as you know out of reach and maybe judgy and looking down from an ivory tower. And you know, most of the time they're super empathetic, compassionate people with big hearts. Well, hi again. Thank you for having me here, Paul. That might might have been yeah. the longest introduction in the history of podcasting. <laughs> well, I just wanted to say thank you for having me here. And I think there's a couple of things that went into me studying psychology. I am originally from Turkey. So when you move to a different state, I think inevitably you kind of like study people to mm -hmm. find your place. Yeah. And I also have a very honest story that I went to college signed up for political science, went undeclared, and then studied, took a psychology 101 course and looked at it and thought, okay, this is interesting enough. I want to study for the next four years of my time here in yeah. college. So it kind of you know evolved for me. And I think the topic of perfectionism eventually obviously became a personal interest. That's something that I had to also work through that also then became my professional passion because I know how common it is and how often it comes up. Uh, how old were you when you moved to the States? I celebrated my 15th birthday here. So I okay. came two weeks before turning 15. Right. And that was in 1998. What was the transition like? Was it uh, difficult? How much English uh, did you know? I, I did know some because in Turkey and I think most countries, you know, they start teaching English starting fifth grade, sixth grade. So I was fluent enough, but I think one of the challenges obviously was the social uh, you know, part of it, you're 15 years old, you're starting high school, and all the friendship I built through my adolescent to kind of enjoy that part of my life disappeared. So I kind of had to start from scratch. And then with other roles that I think other immigrants can relate to is that you become your parents' 
um, you know, tr- translator. Right. So I remember going to, you know, the bank and I'm translating for my mom who's supposed right. to be my authority figure and now right. here I am her, you know. Right. I'm, I'm equal as her because I have a skill that she can't she can do. So. And I imagine doing some cultural translation as well. Yes, yes. So a lot of that I think was the more the social, not the language or... You know, academically, it was fine. I did good on my math SAT scores, but it's more the social and the cultural piece. And did you eventually find uh, a a place that you felt at ease, you felt a part of, you built community, friends, and you felt like, "I, I have transitioned, I no longer feel like the outsider? Or is that still the case? I think that's still the case. You know, that's the interesting thing. And that's one of, again, I have to be honest that imposter syndrome, I think personally, you know, you have to kind of relate to certain things in order to professionally really guide other people. And so, you know, despite having, you know, gone through college and been here for, let's say, 10 years, it's almost like the more you're here, the less you feel you ever catching up. Right. I remember telling my therapist, and this is actually just a few months ago, um, it felt like a marathon and like, you know, everybody start running and I'm still behind. I'm, I feel like you can never catch up. Mm-hmm. There's that little sense that you try to manage. I, I, and this is not me minimizing the experience of somebody coming here from another country, but I think so many of us, to some degree or another, feel like we wake when we wake up, the clock is ticking and everybody else is three steps ahead of us. I I have always kind of had that. And so taking a nap feels like a compromise. You know, if oh, I take too many of these, mm-hmm. I'm never going to be able to retire or, you know, I'm going to be destitute at a certain age. Yes, yes. I think there is a list of triggers to, you know, our imposter syndrome. There's a list of sources, causes, root causes to where we pick up our perfectionism. And so I think you have to obviously self-reflect and find your own personal, you know, experience with it. And obviously for me, a lot of it can come back to having, you know, born and raised in another country and moving here. But that just mine doesn't mean the only people allowed to have imposter syndrome are, you know, people who come from different countries. It's 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 this idea that you're always behind. Mm-hmm. That, that's a limiting belief, right? Yeah. That I'm always behind. I'm not doing enough. I can never catch up. Therefore, I can nap or therefore I must multitask. Mm-hmm. That's what I feel like a lot of the parents I work with during this pandemic stressed out a lot is because they felt like they had to be the best teacher for their kids and best camp counselor for their kids to make sure they were socially engaged then you know best wife best husband best friend it's that multitasking and not giving yourself that permission to rest i imagine there's a lot of people too who had some professional or financial momentum going their way when this happened and all of a sudden the bottom has dropped out and they're feeling like all of their effort, uh, you know, all that momentum is is lost. And I imagine that's a, a pretty scary or uh, hopeless feeling for, for some people. It is. And I was just seeing this earlier today, how some of the depression is obviously rising. And one of the things as, as therapists we're really trying to advocate is that this pandemic isn't just a physical health issue. Mm-hmm. It has become a mental health issue because of the anxiety, yeah. depression, the isolation, um, how how it's impacting everybody. So we're trying right. to have more conversations around it and making resources more available. 
Uh, and just for the record, we're recording this on June 30th of uh, 2020, so we're about, uh, what, three and a half months into uh, quarantine, uh, various stages of, of quarantine. And in California right now, it, it uh, seems to be making a, a resurgence after them opening up uh, restaurants and beaches and stuff like that. And now uh, it's look like they're, they're starting to close stuff down again. Uh, so let's talk about the, the root sources of uh, perfectionism and imposter syndrome. And by the way, um, through the emails I get and people who filled out surveys, the probably the largest group of people that I have read uh, in, in terms of their responses or their emails in terms of struggling with imposter syndrome are PhDs. Mm. Huge number. Huge number. Yes, and there is... Um, this idea that that imposter syndrome and perfectionism tend to happen to people who have actually achieved a lot. And there's all these thoughts that, oh, imposter syndrome is another fancy word for low self-esteem or it's another fancy word for anxiety. Not necessarily because, yes, people with imposter syndrome may have anxiety, may have insecurity, but not all people who are insecure have imposter syndrome. So... What do all people who have imposter syndrome, are are they all insecure? Do they all have anxiety? I know it's probably hard to make a sweeping generalization. But. I think they're definitely, yeah, they're prob- they're very much there. And okay. one of the interesting things, as I you know understand about imposter syndrome, that really, you know, caught my attention was the difference between achieving success and feeling successful. Oh, what a great, great distinction, isn't it? Talk about that. Yes, and and that's when I, when you mentioned the statistics that people that report imposter syndrome, when you look at their CV, they're actually wonderful, very talented. Uh, That's their resume, CV? Yes, yes. Um, Their resume shows wonderful achievements. I mean, you know, that there's enough reason and evidence to feel proud of oneself, and yet the person doesn't feel the success that you would anticipate with those accomplishments. And and I went through that and, and... it was being exacerbated by untreated alcoholism, but I remember going to my psychiatrist and saying, I feel like I my life is on the other side of a plexiglass window. Mm-hmm. And people tell me, you know, oh, I'm jealous of you. You have this great job. You know, you're, you're getting recognition. Uh, I was on TV and, and all the stuff that I thought when I was a kid, this would fix me. And I felt so empty inside and it felt like it was never enough it it felt it was like a version of cocaine that you know a little bump maybe you know getting in some magazine would satiate me for a week and then i would go back to the compare and despair and yeah i imagine that is something that can complicate so many other issues that people have going on be it alcoholism or uh depression Yes, yes. I think the, the one of the key things you said is the mismatch. What, you know, people see from outside and how you're feeling inside. Again, from outside, you have all these accomplishments. You publish that paper, you, um, you know, you, you have this high position or you're on television or radio. And but inside, you are not feeling the natural, you know, the the outcome of those experiences, feeling good about yourself, feeling gratitude, the pride, healthy self-esteem, the, the, the feeling isn't following the actions. And that's when. 
And, and the mean part of the brain will never run out of mean things to say when things go well in our life. And I think the two greatest hits of things that it says when we do accomplish something or somebody does like our work is, well, they have a low bar to measure stuff by, or they're just saying that to make me feel good. Yes. I think a lot of these conversations, and in terms of therapy, I try not to make this too, you know, too psychological, but I use... Cognitive behavioral therapy and CBT says the way we think affects the way we feel. So inevitably, we really need to take a look at what are the thoughts we're having? What's our inner dialogue? And those are the typical thoughts people with imposter syndrome have, their interpretation, the meanings, the conclusions they are making when, it, you know, when they achieve success. It's like things you just mentioned. Uh, I was at the right place at the right time. Um, I got lucky. Anybody can do it. It wasn't that hard. So as you see there... Um, or I just haven't been found out yet. Oh, absolutely. Um, yes, I have. I'm fooling everybody. They're going to find out any minute now, and uh, they're going to realize I'm fake, mm -hmm. and they made a big mistake. Mm -hmm. I don't belong here. I don't deserve to be here. And, and that's actually something that happened to me. Um, so I came here to start high school, and then three years later, I got into college, and... Something that fed into my imposter syndrome is my uh, uh, acceptance letter came in later than everybody else. And uh, back then, I don't know how it is now, but it would come in like an 8 by 11 big envelopes, right? right? The acceptance letter. And then mine came in a regular envelope, which meant a rejection. So I saw it. It was from UC San Diego. So I saw a small envelope. I'm like, okay, I got rejected. And I opened it and it's a welcome brochure. And I thought to myself, oh, you see, you were so down on their waiting list. <laughs> this is a story I told myself, that you're so bottom of their list that they finally got through to you and they sent you some welcome letter instead of the legit 8 by 11 oh acceptance letter. And these are the narratives we tell ourselves. I'm surprised you didn't say, oh, they stuffed the wrong thing in the envelope. <laughs> oh, so I assume I was their backup option. Then right. here's another silly story you tell yourself when you're a minority is, Oh, they needed to fill their minority bucket. Yeah. They needed a, you know, they needed a uh, Middle Eastern uh, or whatever bucket I fit. So there's these stories, narratives we tell ourselves that we have to, as part of overcoming imposter syndrome, is to correct. You do have to correct that. And then I would imagine you also have that segment of society that does negate it, that does say you just got that because you were a woman mm -hmm. or this or or that. Uh, which and, has got to be gasoline on the fire. And I think this also maybe on a more personal level, what sometimes, again, I'm not telling you everybody out there has this experience, but sometimes when people struggle with imposter syndrome and you talk about their life, they did have a parent that was discouraging. They did have a parent or someone they look up to, a football coach or you know a principal at their school. And I've met my clients you know, who had these important authority figures telling them that they're not, you know, they're not meant to be any successful in life and they're lucky if they can just get a job and it sticks with the person. And yeah. for a child, approval is oxygen. You know, mm -hmm. they need a lot of approval to feel a sense of, you know, healthy self-esteem. So if you have parents or teachers who minimize your accomplishments, how are you supposed to do that, as, do that as an adult? Yeah, I wonder what the percentage of really top-tier athletes, the 
creme de la creme of professional sports, what the percentage is of nurturing parents versus emotionally withholding parents because the few documentaries i've seen about the elite athletes lance armstrong and michael jordan it, it, it's their childhoods were void of positive reinforcement and that really drove them to an almost psychopathic level of needing to win yes and i think that's another miss perception around perfectionism that gets away is that people think perfectionism is is a source of motivation perfectionism is a source of drive without it i'll be lazy you know so they glorify and they romanticize the perfectionism and think that it is good for us it's healthy for us it gives me the push i need but it's not because it's, again, the source of it is I'm not good enough. Therefore, I must comp compensate and do everything flawlessly. And I would imagine it makes intimacy and being present really, really difficult. Mm -hmm. um, before we uh, move on in, in that kind of uh, direction, you had touched on talking about the roots, the root causes of this. Yes, yes. So as we mentioned, I think it's important to understand if you personally have any childhood early life experiences that may play a role. Again, it's not to say that this is a conversation about blaming parents or you must have something uh, bad happening to you as a child. It's just that that could be one of the factors. And would disinterested, distant parents be? Yes, disinterest is a huge one. And high achiever parents too. So it's not necessarily that you must have an abusive parent who was emotionally mean to you. If you had a parent who wasn't very generous with their appraisal and compliments, who thought you're supposed to get A's. And again, we see that with immigrant families, like, I worked so hard to bring you to America, you better get your A's. Or um, I didn't have these opportunities as I was growing up, so you better get your A's and do your basketball and the ballet. So parents who expect their children to achieve really high and can't model them resting and playtime also obviously has a hard time as adults. The other thing to consider that I always love reading about is the negativity bias of our brain. Uh, one of the books I love, Buddha's Brain by Rick Hansen, um, he talks about this idea that our brain is wired to be highly sensitive to negative things for our survival, right. for our fight or flight response. So we have to kind of surrender and I think radically accept that our brain is going to be more focused on negative information like mistakes and shortcomings and things we didn't do perfectly. And so we have to counterbalance it by intentionally, I think, giving attention more to positive things at the end of the day. Yeah. And one of the things that my therapist has helped me with uh, in terms of CBD or CBT is she will always say to me, what are the facts on the ground? She'll always bring it back to reality. Yes. And I fucking hate that. <laughs> <laughs> because it works, right? <laughs> yeah, it turns off the Catastrophizer 4000. Yes. Cuts off the fuel. It sure does. Uh, so back to where we were talking about perfectionism and uh, imposter syndrome. Um, what, what, what else would you like to share uh, about it? Was, was your thesis on 
this? What was your thesis on? No, it actually was, um, I did my dissertation on uh, individuals with autism, because at the time I was working with children with autism, so I decided to focus on adults with autism. And so I think it was after after I graduated, um, I read Brenna Brown's book called Gifts of Imperfection. And that was my personal eye-opening, awakening moment where I realize I'm struggling with perfectionism, struggling that I'm good enough. And it's still, though, something that followed me for many years because I achieved different, you know, good things in my life professionally. And every time, and that's the thing with imposter syndrome, the finish line always gets moved. You know, you think, okay, if I just achieve this position, I would finally feel confident. And then you achieve it, and then the finish line is moved. So it it follows you wherever you go. And even if you professionally feel content, then you look at other areas of your life and say, well, I'm not married yet, so there's a deficiency. Or I don't have kids yet, so there's a deficiency. It's like you're creating your own rat race. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And I think a lot of it then eventually comes down to... For me, what has been really, again, another eye-opening and just finding treasure is the self-compassion work. Because to me, the self-compassion work means you have to surrender that you're going to have flaws. You're going to have imperfections. You're going to make mistakes and... The sooner you accept that's part of life, I think easier it gets and yes. more joyful it can get. Uh, I couldn't agree more. It's I don't, I don't know if there are any personal struggles that I have battled as much as that one. And I used to think it was unrelated to other struggles in my life. But uh, I, you know, I, I find that anything that disquiets the mind it really needs to be addressed. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's uh, it's so hard the concept that we might be okay exact, exactly as we are, and that doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive to grow in areas of our life or to achieve things, but that, like you said, that we're waiting to withhold any gift or self love until the finish line. It's such a cruel. Would you do it to your kid? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> no. Yes. It's very conditional, right? Yeah. There's all these conditions you have to meet. And again, that's when it's like you mentioned, it's a vicious cycle because the conditions always change on you, mm-hmm. right? If you met the prerequisites, then comes a chapter two or another round of interviews. It's like another right. round of pr- proving yourself to your own inner judgment. And that's, again, the, the the crazy thing about it is that it's all in the relationship you have with yourself. And mm-hmm. it's all paying attention to your inner critic. Yeah. And the truth is we all have judgmental thoughts. And we all... Um, I remember I saw this meme many, many years ago that said, like, you know, tell that negative committee in your head to sit down and shut up. And it's like, yeah, there's a negative committee in my head that meets and passes along notes on how to make me feel doubt myself. And you have to just know it's there. Build the positive committee that is passion. Its goal is to pick you up, lift you up. And I think going, you know how we were talking about with imposter perfectionism, sometimes people hold on to it. accidentally because they think it drives them to do well. And there's, again, a lot of misperception that it's same as striving to be your best self. It's striving for excellence. And I think with self-compassion, I notice the same kind of a wall where people think 
if I start to change my inner dialogue and start to be more self-compassionate and kinder to myself and start talking to myself like I talk to people in my life that I love, then I will not take responsibility. I will not take accountability. It's selfish. It's inconsiderate. And again, there's that barrier that self-compassion doesn't mean we don't get to take responsibility. Right. Or that we don't have any kind of self-discipline. Yes. Such black and white thinking. Yes. And I think that's probably one of the most important things to bring up is is that perfectionism go hand in hand with black or white thinking. Like if it's either perfect or it's waste of my time, it's either perfect or it's, you know, it's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's not good enough. I, I, I have found that believing in some positive force in the universe, not knowing necessarily how it works, but just believing that there is possibly some benevolent matrix in the world helps me let go of what the results of my effort might be and Mm -hmm. to just try to find joy or focus in the effort itself and that that's been a game changer for me uh talk talk about that notion of uh, people being result uh, oriented and how that can affect us Yes, I think the issue to me with the result-oriented mentality is goes back to, again, how we come to define our worthiness. I think a lot of people measure their worthiness based on their productivity. And their money. Absolutely. So productivity then obviously translates Mm -hmm. to how much income I I have. Productivity results in how much, you know, books I published, Mm -hmm. uh, articles I wrote. How my children are doing. Yes, yes. How many things I can afford for them, how many trips I can take my family. So productivity obviously comes with all of these things that I think Mm -hmm. people are so occupied with and that's that's the relationship i think we have to break or at least that's what i see with all my clients that struggle with anxiety which again what happens they come to therapy for anxiety uh, addiction sleep uh, relationship problems and we break it down and we look at their relationship with themselves and we notice how unloving it is and how there are these rigid rules they must these high expectations they must attain and then we try to redefine that and with the self-compassion helps with knowing that at the end of the day you're deserving of love and worthiness and you deserve to belong here despite any of the product whatever you produce or don't produce it also reminded me as you were talking the work of uh dan harris um he he wrote a book 10 percent happier he he was a guest on this podcast oh my Love goodness dan. yeah oh, he's so amazing and i'm sure he probably brought this up this his his um i i've learned it from him this idea of non-attachment to outcomes mm-hmm. he talks about this idea like you know you got to give something your best but at, at some level need to accept that you can control the outcome and that's been one of my best tools to share with my clients in in therapy and how often failure can be the spark that gives us the success that we're looking for whether it's uh, a sense of purpose or innovation um, yes whatever whatever it might be and i love that reframing i think it's it's incredibly necessary to again change the way we look at 
resting, that resting is not selfish. Resting is not for lazy people. Also, again, change our reframing that mistakes doesn't mean we're inadequate or we don't belong here. I think mistakes mean that we tried. Mistakes means that we're in a path of growth. Mistake means that we're out of our comfort zone. And yet, though, I also want to, I guess, mention the idea of tolerating the discomfort that comes from making mistake. Because a lot of times I notice with my type A or, you know, high achiever perfectionist client, they're so quick to with tools and solutions. They're like, tell me, tell me, what can I do? Well, okay, here's how you can re- reframe your thoughts that to make you feel better. But did you really learn to ride that wave of that emotion? Sit in those feelings. Yes. Let them pass. Mm-hmm. Yes. So let's not rush always right away to mistakes are good. Mistakes can happen, which, m- mind you, that's much needed yes. thoughts. I think we uh, we have to have a balance with yes let's let's change our thoughts but also tolerate that yeah I feel disappointed that this didn't work out for me I feel um insecure that I didn't get that job and 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 I made a mistake I feel bad that I hurt my you know friends feelings I made a mistake it's which goes back to I think another piece is the difference between guilt and shame Mm-hmm. I think perfectionists and uh, people with imposter syndrome are so quick to feel that debilitating shame when they make a mistake rather than the normal. When I say normal, I mean more the healthy average level of disappointment, yeah. regret. Note to self, don't do this next yes, time. Yes, yes. Note to self, yes, this sucks. And... um ride that wave, tolerate the feeling. And I think that has to be part of your game plan. That's part of, Mm -hmm. it has to be part of your toolbox to overcome it in a very kind of long-term way. When I make a mistake, I tell me if this is healthy or not. I delete all my numbers and move. Is that, is that an unhealthy (laughs) coping mechanism? (laughs) That, that might be quite extreme. Yes. That might be quite extreme of, of shedding, but that's, again, is a great example of, you know, how we avoid, how we withdraw, how, um, you know, we think if only if I change this job, if only if I change this relationship, this problems will go away. Right. Yeah. The magical thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I put the question out to Twitter. I said I was going to be uh, interviewing a psychologist who is going to talk about imposter syndrome and perfectionism and i said do you have any questions for her and i'm going to read you some it is a is it a problem that can be overcome through a process of some kind or is it considered a mood slash state of mind i would i would also add or is it both Yes, I was just thinking that it's it's a little bit of both. It is a state of mind. It is a um, imposter syndrome is a feeling like people feel imposter. People feel like they're fraud, fraudulent. And then we know that there are thoughts underneath it that maintains the feeling. So when we and it is obviously something you can overcome. And that's, I think, part of whole personal development is for us to know we're never stuck. If I have a problem with gambling, I can overcome it. If I have, you know, OCD and my brain is miscommunicating, Mm -hmm. I can overcome it. I think we need to know to a certain level, I can overcome my challenges. That's, you know, Mm -hmm. I can build the skills to overcome my imposter syndrome as well and learn to... 
Uh, go ahead, finish your thought. I, I was just going to mention, you know, this the the obvious tools of you know learning to change our inner dialogue, mm-hmm. learning to celebrate our accomplishments. I often tell my clients, like, I feel like they have their mistakes on the billboard and then their accomplishments in the trash can yeah. or the attic that they, you know, that, that collects dust. It's like, right. there's a misplacement here. What's All going right. on? Yeah, the accomplishments are the fine print on a coupon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I was going to add something else and I totally forgot what it was. Uh, somebody else writes, I've always felt that way, that I don't really have the talents I do have. Not a question, but I relate to this syndrome, maybe because no one ever validates me. Uh, thank you for sharing that. That's that. That's a very uh, insightful thing for somebody to be able to notice about themselves. Yes, You know, it it's is. so much easier to notice it in other people than it is for ourselves. And I, oh, this is what I wanted to say. It's so much easier to give compassion and to root for other people and their successes to see them objectively than it is for our own because of a million different reasons we'll say yeah but there's you know when i make something doing woodworking i'll somebody will go oh my god you know that table's so beautiful and i'll think but they don't know that i stripped that one screw that goes in from the bottom and it you know, a really good woodworker wouldn't have left that in there. Yes, that is such a great example. And I think the key word that really stood out to me with that comment is the validation. And sometimes, again, some people will be able to notice that they grew up in an environment that was invalidating. And we know that if your parents didn't model to you, then it's really hard for you to naturally develop that language. Mm -hmm. Again, you can learn it. And that's when, as an adult, we have autonomy to get help for ourselves. But it just won't really, you know, it's not not an Amazon box you can order validation. (laughs) You have to really teach yourself or be taught. So, yeah, validation is a key thing here. Validate when you're struggling. Validating when it's disappointing to make a mistake. And then also celebrate. Um. Doesn't everyone have this to some extent? If you don't have a touch of this, isn't that its own syndrome? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Um, now, what do you say? What do you say to that? Oh, I know what I was going to ask yes. you before. Uh, have you ever had a client who had to cut contact with someone in their life because it was difficult for them to make headway? Very much so. Very much so. I think it's important for you to have your own supportive, encouraging relationship with yourself. Like I always tell my clients when you gave that wonderful example of how nicer we are to everybody else than ourselves, I ask my clients, you have to be your loudest cheerleader instead of your worst enemy. So while you need to do that for yourself, you need to have cheerleaders around you that is supporting you, want the best for you. And if unfortunately, whatever inner demons and dilemmas those people are having with themselves that is being projected onto you, you need to cut it. And and that's a kind of, you know, again, if it's your parents sometimes or if it's relationships, yes, I I, I think it's difficult to maintain your sanity and your inner peace if there is unhealthy people around you. Um, And I would also add to that somebody whose support is really inconsistent because that's, Mm -hmm. you know, people that gaslight, that can be one of the things that's so difficult about cutting contact with them, if if that's deemed necessary, is the fact that you're, you know, you're, you're not weighing 
this versus that. It's, it's, and waiting for an overall number. Is it in the positive or is it in the negative? But saying, you know, do I deserve more than this negative, this lack of consistency, you know, and not asking for perfectionism from that other person, but that person to own their shit and apologize when they're wrong and to try to do better. Yes, I think consistency is is huge because imagine how much mental distress, confusion we feel if the other person is being inconsistent with their support, inconsistent with their level of understanding. You know, one day they're supportive and help you work through an issue and then the next day or next time they are not being as understanding and then coming at you judgmental. Mm -hmm. Inevitably, it's going to discredit the right. understanding they yeah. showed yeah. The, the, the time before. So in the consistency, I think, is huge in any relationship. Yeah. I remember one time uh, I brought something up. I was talking uh, to my mom on the phone. This was years ago before I uh, cut contact with her. But uh, I was talking about some bit that we had done on, on the TV show. And, and she said, oh, yeah, that stupid thing. And I just, it felt like a punch in the gut. And not that I was looking, to, you know, to, to my mom to be my total source of validation, but it was so over the top and it's just thoughtlessness. Mm -hmm. I just started laughing. And she said, what are you laughing about? And I said, how did you expect me to not be offended by that? Mm -hmm. It was just so... And that's one of the reasons I had to cut her out of my life was somebody that just had zero self-awareness, had no filter, and didn't really want to own their stuff, didn't really want to put the work in to, to try to change. Or maybe it was it was beyond her control. Maybe there's a personality disorder that it's just, but it's not my fault, and it's, it's not up to me to fix her. Yes. Um... Has anyone ever really overcome it? I think we kind of uh, asked that. Yes, And definitely. would overcome or manage be a better word? And I think that goes back to the other comment about, you know, do, does everybody have it a little bit? Um, I, I don't think so. Not everybody has it, uh, has an imposter syndrome. We are seeing it with people. There was a funny comment I saw online uh, last week that someone said, you know, people with imposter syndrome really don't suck. You know, people who actually suck don't have <laughs> imposter syndrome. Yeah. So I don't think everybody has it. It's the and ones that are grandiose that the results are sometimes questionable. Yes. And it doesn't mean that you need to have imposter syndrome to be a humble right. person either. Right. Um, I think there's a variety of issues out there. You just got to figure out what's yours. I think it goes back to your comment about self-awareness. You got to figure out what's your issues. Uh is there a significant correlation with neurodiversity, especially ADHD? Is there possibly a genetic influence? Oh, fancy pants. <laughs> <laughs> I Not that I've read. I, again, I don't think uh, there's not enough link with any anything with imposter syndrome. Um, we are seeing more imposter syndrome with maybe, again, based on gender, race, and, you know, with minority groups that are underrepresented, they feel more imposter syndrome because they feel like they have to prove themselves more than other people. But aside from that, no, no clinical diagnosis that have a link. Well, that's a, a good segue into uh, talking about uh, you being Armenian and growing up in Turkey uh, yes. and for for people 
who aren't familiar with the history of Turkey and the Armenian people, uh, could you fill them in? Yes, there is unfortunately still a conflict uh, of the in 1915 is the Armenian genocide. And so the Turkish government um, does not acknowledge and recognize it. And therefore, a lot of Armenians, um, obviously now many generations, uh, passed and they are still trying to obviously fight for that recognition. And there's there's interesting because my dad is Armenian, my mom is Turkish, so Ooh. Yeah, yeah. I had a guest on who's uh, from Northern Ireland, and he had one Protestant parent and one Catholic parent. Yes, yes. talk about what that was like. The thing is, it was really beautiful because in in our household, you know, we we were very. We were very, it was very simple to us what mattered. It wasn't the language or the religion or the nationality or ethnicity. What brought us together and what made our family a family were fundamental values of love and respect and connection. And I, I appreciate that about my parents. I actually love how different they can be on certain things. Um, and it really reminds you that you don't, you don't have to belong to a group to again know who you are or love somebody mm-hmm. and and who which parent was uh or is armenian my father and did he live in armenia and that's the thing no my it's interesting to say that because my parent my father's side is always from the region around istanbul mm-hmm. so as as you know historically armenians were living in that region and so my my father's side has always lived in the region that is Turkey. So we're, mm-hmm. they were never uh, from the land of Armenia. They were always right. from that land. Does your father have any memories of relationships being worse than they are today between uh, the Turks and Armenians or uh, um, racism or difficulty finding employment uh. it's it's it varies a lot you know it's on one hand when my parents and the the cute story about them is that my grandparents my mom's father and my dad's father knew each other and that's how the families knew each other so Mm. i think that really helped with their with their marriage is that the you know how you know how it is. The parents yeah. approve the relationship, so right. they obviously knew each other. There's a picture of my parents, black or black and white. My mom is three years old. My dad is five years old because they went to the beach together, and they right. they were two kids. So it's it's. I think it helped that mm-hmm. they're the families already knew each other, and again, it speaks to the community there that everybody didn't separate because of religion right. or, or or ethnicity, and however. There were some family members who refused to come to the wedding. This is in eighties, and then now my cousins are married to they're Armenian and their spouses are Turkish. So you see things have changed and people are more open minded. But then obviously on a political level, things probably got worse. Talk about generational trauma in the Armenian community. I know that's kind of a broad thing to just throw out there, but. Um, I can't imagine there's any community that experiences a genocide that is then denied uh, that there aren't going to be ripples for generations. 
Yes, and I think there is a sense of responsibility I see among many of my peers who, again, feel a sense of responsibility to 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 fight to meaning spread the spread awareness and uh, politically make change and advocate. So I think there is that sense of responsibility to not let this die down if they are grandparents or if great-grandparents that were affected um, are, aren't around to tell their stories. So it's up to them to, to tell their stories. Um, so I think there is that um, sense of responsibility and, and um, feeling like they have to fight for it. And on the flip side, are there struggles with wounds and identity? Um, you know, one of the things that, that you sometimes see in communities that that have been uh, oppressed is th- the identity becomes one of victim, and everything is seen through the lens of being a victim. And, and again, that's not to minimize what happened to them, but I think it's 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 easy sometimes to equate our life life circumstances with who we are as a person, and to limit what perhaps it is that we could accomplish or grow. Um, does I that make sense? It does. And I, I think it goes back to that sense of perfectionism that I have to work harder or I have to work really hard because my parents, my grandparents been through a lot to help me have these resources or help me uh, or again, feeling that pressure that I have to use my platform to the fullest extent Mm -hmm. and I have to make this worthwhile. And am I doing enough? Am I speaking enough about this? Am I, uh, again, doing enough advocacy work? And it can also be difficult sometimes to give yourself permission to, like we were talking about rest, to to have fun and to laugh because Mm -hmm. there's that guilt like, Aren't I supposed to, you know, be sad and aren't I supposed to feel the, the loss? And can I, am I being selfish when I'm enjoying my life? Right. I think we feel that way with most things right now, you know, with the pandemic. And right. can I really enjoy my life when my neighbors are, you know, maybe let go and unemployed? <clears throat> That's not a COVID cough, by the way. I just swallowed wrong. <laughs> uh, anything else that you would like to share about uh, perfectionism or imposter syndrome? I think one of the things that really was most important f- the, from our conversation is really understanding our own journey of imposter syndrome, and and obviously it's not a it's not a conversation you can you know force on yourself. You don't have to like look for it. You know, I think uh, when you read some some things about it, it clicks right away. It, it really articulates. Oh, this is what I've been going through, and I think it's important to understand your own personal journey and your personal triggers to what uh causing the imposter syndrome and because sometimes you might be feeling an imposter syndrome because well i'm the first one in my family to go to college i'm an, i'm the first one in my family to start my own business and if that's your trigger then you can really zone into that and do what you need to do to quiet that that voice i think it's important to really understand your personal triggers and and really ch- learn to be you're a good friend to yourself. Yeah. I, I 
couldn't agree more about the being your own best friend. We're uniquely positioned to be our own best friend. Yes. And yet, if we talk to somebody the way we talk to ourselves, they would get a restraining order. Yes, yes. And that, that's the thing that is very, you know, hard to comprehend, right? That yeah. we don't talk to anybody as, as, as harshly as we talk to ourselves. Right. And I think we have to be willing to change that. And I think that's the other thing to consider. You're not going to feel better tomorrow. You're not going to feel, uh, it's, it's not the feeling that we're learning to change right away. It's not a light switch. It's about changing your attitude and it's about changing your practice. And awareness. Awareness. Yeah. And I, I mean, any, any, you know, gratitude list you can do, any journaling you can do where you are celebrating your accomplishments on during your meditation, you know, loving kindness meditations. I think you have to focus on those actions and you have to focus on your thoughts and feelings will follow. You know, given what's going on in the world, if you can get up and shower, you should high five yourself. Yes. Yes. There's a lot of things we can really give ourselves credit for. And, and I would also extend that self-love to your body. Mm. It's, it's so hard to love our bodies because all we see are the things that it's not. And, you know, sometimes just stop and go, you know, if you're mobile, look at your legs with amazement that you can get around. You know, if you're able to digest food, you know, be grateful for that. Mm -hmm. If you have your sight be be grateful for that and and just be be your body's friend it needs you it really does i think you need yourself yeah you need you need to have yourself by your side like i i, I remember you know telling my clients like you have to have your own back you know you yeah. gotta you gotta stand by yourself and cheer yourself and i know it sounds silly like as if another person is standing right next to me but it's that mentality that mm -hmm. i stand by myself i you know, I appreciate myself and, and I know it's not going to be easy. I know it's, I, I feel like, you know, a lot of times people are like, are you serious? I'm really going to make me pat myself on the shoulder for taking a shower. And I can hear the, you know, the, the mockery in their voice. Like, yeah, I am telling you that because it starts with little things. I think perfectionism say, I must do something grandiose and I must do something really worthwhile for me to celebrate for me to practice gratitude and no it's actually in the very simple everyday subtle right. things because if you, you haven't as cheesy as it sounds opened your heart to those little things the big thing's not going to sink in mm -hmm. ever ever and i'll uh, i'll i'll end with this it's a, a quote from somebody in my support group we're talking about you know being mean to our body and this person said and how mean our head is this person said i swear to god if my head didn't need my body to get around it would kill it <laughs> very true very yeah. true uh Thank you so much for, for coming on. We'll put all of your uh, social media links, uh, but just to give them out right now in, in case anybody is uh, on their phone or computer. Yes. So for website, it's www.embracingyoutherapy.com. And for Instagram, you can find me, Dr. Minije, which my first name, M-E-N-I-J-E. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really, really enjoyed talking to her. Um and as always, we'll put all the links to 
stuff that we mentioned in the show notes for the, uh, for the episode. I want to give a shout out to my friend and former guest, uh, Brianne Davis Gant, who has a new podcast called The Secret Life Podcast. And I was a guest on it, um, a couple of weeks ago. And it is a great, great new podcast. Uh, I've known her through our support groups for 10 plus years. And there's a saying in our support groups, you're only as sick as your secrets. And she's, uh, she's an actress, a writer, a director, and she thought, you know, I want to, I want to give something back that I've, that I've learned in support groups. And since we talk about our secrets a lot in support groups, she thought, let's do a podcast where people come on and they share something that they have kept secret or are currently keeping secret. You know, that could be tragic, terrifying, uh, silly. And it's just a cool, it's a cool podcast and she's a great soul. And I think you should, you should check it out because, you know, when we shine the light on the stuff that we're keeping secret, it takes the power out of it. And I think there's just something really soothing about hearing other people say this stuff that's hard to say. It's one of the reasons I started this podcast. So listen to Secret Life Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Let us. Oh, and I should mention that it's every Tuesday and Friday that the show uh, the show airs. Let's do some surveys. I don't think I'm going to get through all of these. I always bite off more than I can uh, vomit. Or is it chew? I can't remember. This is uh, from the Psych Ward Experiences survey. This is filled out by person, a woman who calls herself two years this December. She's in her 20s and she was hospitalized because of a depressive episode and suicidal ideation. Uh, Describe your experience. It was helpful, but I remember feeling like I was at sad camp, but with the worst food. One day we requested to have a speaker so we could play music during our break time. Another patient played this one song that I can't remember the name of, but it was so beautiful. I wanted to request to play a song, but I couldn't think of anything. Music had been such a large part of my life, but due to my anxiety and depression, I stopped listening because I could never make it through a song. It's been two years, but I am somewhat able to listen to music again. Six months after that break time music session, I was shopping in a store with my boyfriend and heard it playing on the radio, and I started to softly cry. Thank you for that. Man, can any, anything get to us as quickly as a song? I think I've shared this story before, but it was, it was um, maybe about nine months after my marriage broke up, and I took a trip to Europe by myself, and I was in Germany in this beautiful little postcard town called Baden-Baden, and, and I was feeling empowered but also really lonely. And there was this guy playing the piano. He had rolled a piano out into the middle of this plaza. And he was the most amazing piano player I have ever seen. His his arms and hands looked like they were made of water, the way they just flowed over the piano. And he played every sad song I have ever loved. And I just sat there and cried for a half hour. And this one guy was looking at me like, dude, what is your problem? 
Or he was looking at me like, boy, I wish I, I wish I could cry in public, but it was, I don't, I don't think I've ever experienced something as bittersweet as, as that. This is from the love survey filled out by Amanda, and she writes, I loved getting into a bed where the bedding is just a little bit colder than your body temperature. Oh, that's such a simple one, but so great. This is from the psych ward experiences filled out by a woman who calls herself Little Miss Chaotic. And... Why were you hospitalized? I was detained under the Mental Health Act. I live in Britain several times in my early to late 20s. I was detained officially for my anorexia, but I was later diagnosed with personality disorders, and then parentheses, mixed, uh, depression and severe anxiety and PTSD. The PTSD was due to early childhood trauma and my inpatient hospital stays. Describe your experience. I went through some of the worst years of my life detained in hospital. I was admitted under the Mental Health Act to a private hospital, a specialist eating disorder treatment center, several times between 2013 and 2018. I was a compulsive exerciser and would exercise in my hospital bedroom between staff checks. My exercise got so bad that my consultant decided I would need IM, intramuscular injections of haloperidol, a strong antipsychotic, against my will. I was restrained hundreds of times, once by eight male nurses and healthcare assistants. I would cry and scream in pure terror. I had a nasogastric tube and was force-fed thousands of calories to help me gain weight against my will. I was and remained, it was and remains the most intrusive and disgusting thing I have ever been through. I couldn't believe how I was treated like an animal for so many, many years and it was just accepted as normal. In late 2018, I was admitted to an NHS, that's National Health Service, funded unit in London, and my treatment was such a contrast. I remember my first meeting with my consultant. I said to her, please don't inject me or tube feed me. And she said, gosh, no one would ever do that. That's extremely traumatic and intrusive. I finally began to heal, worked hard in one-on-one and group therapy, got the help I so desperately needed, and was there for three months as opposed to two years at the private facility. I've been out of hospital since. Thank you for that. Such a great example of the importance of some type of connection and empathy on the part of the part of the staff. This is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself just some guy. He writes, I live on the east side of Los Angeles and love it, but today I went to a new skate park near the beach. After leaving the skate park, I decided to take a swim in the ocean and have a good meal at one of my favorite bars on this side of town that I haven't been able to, to uh, or had a reason to be over here because of the quarantine. The beach and swim were perfect, but as soon as I arrived at the bar, I was overwhelmed with loneliness and anxiety about all the people around me that were clearly in groups of friends, and I'm extremely insecure about the fact that I have very few friends in the place I live. Then I was scrolling through Instagram and came across a post from a mental health account I follow, and it reminded me viscerally that I was, in fact, not alone. 
and I was filled with joy and sadness at the same time. I began to cry in front of all of these people in the outdoor area. Oh my God, that's so funny that I just shared that story. Uh, and then I realized because of this mask and my sunglasses and the music, no one around me has any idea that I'm weeping. In that moment, I started to laugh at how ridiculous the situation was and wondering how many other masked citizens are quietly weeping. Oh, man, thank you for that. This is from the Psych Ward Experiences survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Copy McCopeface. I wonder if she's from the Connecticut McCopefaces. They're everywhere. Well, they're like a plague. Oh, the McCopefaces have moved in. And why would you name your kid Copy? That's just cruel. Why were you hospitalized? I struggled with suicidal thoughts for quite some time, but one night I lost all trust in myself. I had no plan for suicide, but I wasn't sure what I was capable of in the coming hours. I drove myself to the ER. I knew it was time to turn the responsibility of my safety over to someone else. Describe your experience. I sat in an armchair and watched what felt like eight hours of HGTV with several other patients. How can you expect someone to want to live after that many episodes of House Hunters? <laughs> a worker came through the room with a bin of snacks and sandwiches. After accepting my dinner, another patient turned to me and struck up a conversation. I struggled to understand what she was saying, but we traded snacks and shared a laugh. That small connection helped me more than my time with the doctors. Thank you for that. Oh, you know, if I if I were to pick a survey that is emblematic of the psych ward experiences, because hundreds of people have filled this survey out, and I've and I've read you know ninety nine percent of them, that is the gist of it is that they just longed for some type of sense that that they were in the hands of somebody who was caring, compassionate, and, and qualified. This is from the love survey filled out by Hell's Hamster. And they write, I love cleaning my ears with Q-tips after showering. I imagine that's how Felicia, my dog, feels when her leg vibrates in the air when I rub her happy spot. You know how hard it was for me to not make a dirty joke there. This is from the uh, racism survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself confused. She's in her 30s, and uh, she is of Indian descent. And she writes, I was 35. I went to a meetup at a bar with a friend. There are two examples of racism in this story. I was talking to some of the males there and noticed I was being stared at by a group of men. It made me feel uncomfortable, so I ignored it and continued talking to some of the guys in the group. I was growing frustrated as with each new conversation, it went the same way. We introduce ourselves. He says, where are you from? I say, uh, Melbourne. He says, that's not what I mean. Where are your parents from? I say, my parents are Indian, but I grew up here. Uh, where are you from? I asked him. He looked confused. How long have you been in Australia? He asked me almost my whole life. Where are you from? I only ask it back uh, as he did ask me first. And he looks confused. 
He says, I'm from here. And I say, oh, that's interesting. Where are your parents from? He looked confused. He says, I don't know. What does that matter anyway? And I said, exactly. It doesn't. And he says, why did you just ask? I said, I'm just asking the same question you asked me. He says, yeah, but that's different. Is it? How? He says, because you're not from here. Eventually, one of the men staring came up to me and said, can I speak to you? I said, sure. He said, in private. I said, okay. He pulled me aside and said, you're Indian. I said, yes. He said, why are you talking to these white guys? Excuse me? You should be talking to us. You should be sticking with the Indians. Who do you think you are to tell someone that you, who you don't know who they can and can't talk to? You are Indian, so you should do as we say. I promptly went to my friend and told her what happened. She said, we are leaving. Do you remember how you felt when it happened? I felt furious for two reasons. One, for people treating me like treating me like I'm not an Aussie because I don't have white skin and constantly having to explain my family history while they don't. And number two, males from my background thinking it's okay to tell women what to do and they will just do it. I'm furious that this is part of the culture to be forced to listen to what a man says. How do you feel about it now? It still makes me angry that I'm not considered an Aussie even though I grew up here and to Indians that think that they and to Indians that they think I follow those ways and can be told what to do and treated however they want. I feel like I don't fit in with Indians and I don't fit in with the Aussies, so I'm always an outsider no matter where I am. Thank you for that. Now, here are a lot of people who, if they're first or second generation or maybe they're uh, mixed race, they are always describing that feeling like they're not enough of one or not enough of the other and they're just kind of left in this no man's land. This is from the love survey filled out by a person who calls themselves Peaceleaf777 and they write, I love that I've recently chosen to be 100% celibate. I don't have a time frame. Maybe it'll be for a month, maybe for a year. I'm just rolling with it. Because of sexual abuse and brainwashing and grooming to be a sexual slave for my abuser, my sexuality never felt like it belonged to me. After being sexual with myself, uh, even being sexual with myself has never been just me and my genuine desires. It's been me and the conditioning from my abuser. I do not think sexuality is inherently shameful at all, but for me it almost always is something that is shameful that I feel pressured to do, and I didn't realize how much pressure I was feeling from my past abuse even just to be sexual with myself. Now I feel an immense amount of relief. I feel like I'm finally using my free will to make a healthy choice for myself, and I feel so at peace. I love that I stopped to listen to what I truly needed instead of trying and trying to make sex a positive thing for me. I really love that for the first time in my life, I feel a sense of ownership over my body and my choices with it. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. Thank you. There is nothing like the feeling of getting back in touch with your body. It can be such a great tool to tell us what's going on. You know, listening to your stomach when it's when it's tightened. You know, oh, what's what's making my stomach tighten? Oh, maybe this person that drains me, or maybe I'm afraid of 
something that is irrational and I need to just take a deep breath and let go. And then he listed another hundred reasons. This is from the Shame and Secret survey, and this uh, this one gets a bit heavy. And this is filled out by a woman who calls herself way too fucked up to be 19, question mark. She identifies as pansexual. Uh, she's 19, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, yes, and I reported it. And then another instance, yes, and I never reported it. The first time I was abused, I was 14 and was locked in a room by an older guy. He was maybe 16 or 17, and he forced me to touch him and forced his fingers inside of me. I still can't handle getting fingered. I never reported that. No point. The second time that I count, other than the countless encounters I had with older men for money before I was 18, they didn't know I was younger, but statutory rape, I guess, question mark, was an older man I met online. He was 48 and I was 15 when we first started talking. He came from Florida to Virginia when I was 16. He knew my age, he knew everything, and I lost my virginity in a hotel room with him. He groomed the hell out of me, and it was dot, 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 kind of the worst idea ever. It happened he left, we stopped talking, and then my photos were found in his possession. He was a cop, so he really fucked himself. So a sh a, another cop showed up at my door when I was 17 and outed the whole thing to my parents. Made me talk about it, showed my parents photos that I sent, censored slash cropped of course, and tried to force me to go to court over it. So now... I'm 19, still having the FBI on my case, contacting me because some gross perverted cop asshole fucked with me and distributed my nudes or, uh, around, along with more girls, apparently, and they still can't seem to pin him down. Apparently, I'm the only one who can put him in jail. Not a lot of pressure or anything. She's also been physically and emotionally abused, uh, and she simply says, I have bad taste in men. Any positive experiences with abusers? Yeah, I dated my abuser for two years, 15 to 17. I loved him, even though I was seeking out affairs while I was with him. We just recently started talking again, and I'm even considering going back to him, despite the fact that he hit me and put my life in danger. What can I say? I don't seem to like myself too much. I wonder if she means the, the cop. I don't know. Uh, darkest thoughts. I think I'm a sex addict. Darkest secrets. I cheat on everyone. Literally, I can't help but cheat. Every relationship, I've had sex with someone else. And honestly, as long as they don't find out, I don't feel guilty. I know that it's wrong. It's a wrong thing to do, but something in me can't help it. I need the attention. I need the reassurance that I'm still attractive outside of my relationship. I think I've recently decided... I think either being polyamorous or non-monogamous in some other way would be good for me, but I get very possessive over other people and don't want them sleeping around like I do. I don't know what to do or if I'll grow out of this. You know, I, I am not a therapist, but I have experienced some of uh, some sexual trauma and stunting of uh, 
my ability to be intimate and have experienced some healing there. And in my opinion, it is not something that is just going to go away on its own. And that trauma needs to be healed. And it's it, it needs some in, intensive processing, whether it's a therapist or a support group. Um, but I really, because the shame, keeping all of that secret, and the shame creates a cycle. We're tired of feeling shame, so we act out sexually, then we feel shame again. And you don't have to feel like that. There, there can be a freedom from that. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. A power imbalance. Teacher, student, stepdad, stepdaughter, etc. I want to be out of control. That might be why I like older men so much. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I think I have addiction problems in a lot of ways. I don't want to tell anyone because I don't want people to police my behavior. You can tell people without them policing your behavior. You know, that's the that's one of the things about support groups that's so great, or, or a good therapist, is you can just be you. You can be seen for the beautiful soul that you are. And the, you're not a bad person. You're not a dirty person. You're, you're somebody who has wounds, and the, the acting out is a result of unhealed wounds. Anything you'd like to say, say to someone you haven't been able to? Oh, we just did that one. Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for? For me to just figure out what I want without hurting people. Have you shared these things with others? No, I don't want to. I tell people I've only had sex with one or two people and that I lost my virginity at 18, but that's not true. How do you feel after writing these things down? Like I'm messed up, question mark. Oh, sending you some love. Sending you some love. And then finally, this is from the love survey filled out by Aspie Femalian. And she writes, I love watching storm clouds roll in. I love the feeling of connection you have with someone when you share a common experience. I love tight hugs from my husband. I love watching my two-year-old niece learn all about the world around her. I love getting lost in thought while watching a campfire on a crisp, bugless night. I love pulling the last piece into a, putting the last piece into a jigsaw puzzle. I love an intense orgasm that takes forever to achieve and causes floods of emotion afterwards. And I love cake. Who doesn't love cake? There's probably somebody out there. But thank you, by the way. Those were those are awesome. I'm sure there are people out there that, that, that don't like cake. I am skeptical of anybody that likes cake more than pie, though. That, to me, that's a red flag. That's the FBI needs to get involved there because there's some psychopathy. There is something going down. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, you are not alone. So not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.